We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. This week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps, and I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the latest on the Panshir coronavirus cluster infection case. Government officials saying there's currently no need for city or nationwide lockdowns. Chances being slim of an invitation to the World Health Assembly. How Taiwan's tech and electronic sectors are weathering the coronavirus pandemic. Some fancy new passport cover designs. The KMT touting its Institute of Revolutionary Practice as a platform to attract young talent. And Taiwan's rankings in the 2020 World Press Freedom Index. But we'll begin here this this week, where the week began, that being Taiwan's much-touted effective handling of the coronavirus outbreak, turning somewhat pear-shaped after it was confirmed that naval personnel serving aboard the Panshir fast combat support ship had tested positive for the virus. As we're recording the show today, 29 naval personnel have been confirmed as having contracted the coronavirus, which has pushed Taiwan's total cases up to 427 since the outbreak began late last year and as we're recording the show. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Center says it believes the earliest cases of the coronavirus cluster infection on the naval vessel happened after it left Taiwan as part of a three-ship fleet of friendship flotilla mission to Palau. The ships returned to the island on April the 9th and 744 naval personnel were allowed to disembark the vessels on April the 15th when of course they went their own ways none the wiser. They may have been infected with the virus and they visited more than 90 locations in 10 cities and counties between April the 15th and 18th. Now President Tsai Ing-wen on Wednesday apologised for the handling of the coronavirus cluster infection on board the Navy supply ship and she said that the four areas of negligence in its handling of the case that have been identified so far are only the beginning of a fuller investigation into the matter. Two admirals have now been removed from their posts pending further investigation for responsibility and Rear Admiral they are Rear Admiral Chen Daohui the former commander of the Navy's fleet of friendship flotilla, he was obviously removed from his post but he admitted this week that he failed to report to his superior about fever cases aboard his ships during their month-long cruise as required. However, he defended that decision, saying that he didn't report the cases because the medical officer on board had already ruled out that many of them were common colds and not suspected coronavirus cases in the first place. Now, the head of the Navy on Thursday also apologised and said, well... He's in charge of the Navy, so the buck stops with him. And, of course, all that has led to heightened coronavirus concerns because, of course, there's concern in all these places the sailors went there could be cluster infections breaking out. But the health minister, Chen Shijong, on Wednesday said there's currently no need for the government to order city or nationwide lockdowns, but he said advanced preparations and drills are necessary for such possibilities. Now, last week, the new Taipei city government... It held a drill, and we got one in Taipei coming up, I believe, in a couple of weeks. And in the beginning of May, Kaohsiung has a planned preparation drill for a coronavirus community outbreak. But Penghu this week became the first city or county here in Taiwan to make the wearing of face masks mandatory outside of the home. 
And Taiwan's dealings, or rather lack of dealings, with the World Health Organization continued this week, as on Monday the Ministry of Foreign Affairs admitted that Taiwan's chances of receiving an invitation to the World Health Assembly in May are slim. However, the ministry said it's continuing to seek the support of diplomatic allies and other friendly countries, such as the United States, to obtain an invitation to the meeting anyway. Meanwhile, Taiwan's spat with the WHO kicked off once again. Seems to be doing that every week recently. Anyway, this time it was over the email sent by health officials here in Taiwan to the WHO at the end of last year that alerted the global health body about the possible human-to-human transmission of the coronavirus. Now, WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom was asked on Monday about the exact hour his organisation received Taiwan's email, which was sent apparently on December the 31st of last year, and if the WHO ignored its warnings of human-to-human transmission. Now, Tedros told reporters then that the first email was not from Taiwan, while another WHO official said that Taiwan didn't report any human-to-human transmissions. So, Brian, we'll begin with the Pan Shur scandal, and oh dear, whoops. <laughs> That's right. It does appear that the coronavirus spreads quite rapidly on enclosed spaces such as ships. That's why we have these cases such as on cruise liners with the Diamond Princess or aircraft carriers such as American aircraft carriers currently. And so this has now occurred with the ROC Navy and this has created issues Um, because it's actually quite astonishing that a relatively small group of sailors did travel so widely in such a short amount of time that the government sent out 200,000 text messages to all Taiwanese uh, that were in uh, detected by, by cell phone tracking as having been in close proximity of, of these sailors. Um, the fear is, I think, particularly ahead of Labor Day weekend, which will see increased travel once again, similar to the tomb sweeping holiday earlier, um, that this could allow for the spread of community transmission. And I think that the government is really afraid of a kind of Singapore-style scenario in which it seemed as though things were under control, but things rapidly expand and go out of control and so forth. And I think that then, of course, you will see some uh, uh, criticisms in the government, um, needs for resignations and reassignments of position and so forth. But also questions exist about where exactly these cases came from. Palau currently reports no cases. It has a population of around 18,000. It's possible that because it does not report any cases, there might already be cases there. It just does not want to admit that. Otherwise, it will cause social panic. But it's also been raised that possibly these, uh, if these sailors did not have COVID-19 when they left Taiwan, that the shipmate stops elsewhere. This could be because of classified military activity, illicit activity, or something else. And so I think there are a lot of mysteries here which will uh, emerge in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, well, uh, on Palau, the the thing that I, I mean, I'm glad, obviously, the foreign ministry t- checked with their, they, they tested all of their, uh, uh, all of their embassy staff and all of that. Uh, the big question that comes to, to my mind is where exactly do sailors go when they when they you know when they're an R and R in a in a foreign country? I, I, I'm doubting they tested exactly the kind of people that, they, that sailors would normally visit when they're in a foreign port. Um, but overall, I think that the this was a huge embarrassment. This this that now I know that the um, one of the one of the officials who was a who was who was removed said that yes these were all supposedly according to the ship's doctors these were these were not they were common colds they were the flu and so he thought he didn't need to he didn't need to inform anyone upstairs but it seems like in these heightened times and they left in March when it was pretty clear that there was major outbreaks the whole world over and Taiwan had already closed its borders. So it's kind of remarkable that they they didn't report 
fevers and uh, respiratory illness issues uh, upstairs at the time in spite of what the ship doctors said and they didn't and they they and and, and I actually agreed with Wu Zihui who came out and said you know the president had to have approved this this is something that as commander in chief the the president has to approve uh, personally to leave and so this is kind of a that's a little bit of a mystery but to uh president Taiwan's credit she did come out and say very specifically that as the head of the commander and the, as the commander of the armed forces i have to take responsibility so brian should they have stayed at home well, I think they should have been put under quarantine when they got back, and it's actually surprising that this did not seem to happen. The, the, perhaps there's a belief that because this ship had traveled for such a long period of time back to Taiwan, uh, there would be no need to do this. But I think that just there was a, a kind of a, a loophole, and this is really what allowed the situation to happen. Um, so I think there's, in general, I think that's actually the most dangerous thing right now, that there are loopholes regarding travel and so forth that people are not paying attention to, and this will allow for the spread of the disease or an explosion or uh, things like that. And I think particularly regarding Palau, uh, this could actually become a diplomatic incident, alienating one of Taiwan's few remaining allies. Um, it could be that it's probably it's probable this, this fleet was there to bring medical supplies because Taiwan was bringing ventilators, testing kits, and so forth to Palau and other allies and that kind of thing. Um, but it's actually possible then that this became a way for COVID-19 to spread to a place where there were previously no cases. And Donovan, what about the community? Obviously, there's concern about a community outbreak because of this. Is Taijong planning an emergency drill? Uh, well, there's something planned. There, there's uh, some kind of emergency drill planned for this weekend. Um, but uh, since uh, since this happened, pretty much everything is every 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 place that the the sailors have gone that they're aware of, they've shut down and sterilized. And that included a carrefour. It included the popular shopping street Yijongjie, uh, which is actually within Taichung. If you're if you're not from Taichung, is actually the market to go to. I think in a, for, in a lot of people's minds, Fengjia is the one that jumps to everyone's mind. But uh, locals tend to go to Yijongjie. Um, so the the city, uh, so the city has shut down a whole whole series of uh, of popular places. There's also been a, a bunch of areas, including over in Nanto. Uh, near schools where the sailors visited. Yeah, that's right. And so I think city governments now have uh, pressure to respond in a way that is effective. And so I think you'll see that maybe dividing along pan-blue and pan-green lines, actually, but depending on who is the mayor of what city or county and so forth. I mean, you see something similar in Kaohsiung with claims that some of the sailors refused to be taken in and there's a standoff and so forth. Um, there have been questions raised of Hangul of the KMT for uh, claiming that this incident happened, and some people actually dispute that. But this would be interesting, and I think just actually um, one will see actually partisan responses regarding local governments versus central government and so forth. And of course, Donovan, lockdowns. Do you think there should be lockdowns in Taiwan at the moment? Well, the central government has said no. They said that it, right now there's been 10, as of yesterday, there have been 10 consecutive days where there have been no domestic transmissions, obviously excluding the pension outbreak on the Navy, you know, the, of the sailors. So I, I, at this point, they've done a pretty good job, so I'm t- I tend to agree with them. And when you consider 10 consecutive days with no native outbreaks, I think that they're they're pretty solid in their, uh, their uh, on their reasoning in that there does not there does not seem to be at this point any any community outbreaks anywhere in the country. 
Right now, moving on to the WHO. And, of course, Brian, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week said the chances of Taiwan attending the World Health Assembly in May are slim. That's right. And so I think particularly because the WHO has taken such a hard line on the issue, um, despite these spats with Taiwan and these public incidents in which it has not actually come off as so well. I think there's more attention to the WHO exclusion of Taiwan more than ever. Uh, but because of that, precisely now it has become an issue of prestige. And so I don't think the WHO and the WHA and uh, Dr. Tedros really want to back down on this issue. Um, it really uh, it depends now, I think, on how the government reacts. In the past, they have sent, for example, Chen Shizhong, the Minister of Health and Welfare, to uh, be on the sidelines of these WHO meetings and conducting his own meetings and trying to draw attention to the fact that Taiwan excluded from this global health body. Um, that might happen this year, or perhaps it will stay in Taiwan to manage the uh, response to COVID-19, but someone will be sent. And I think it depends on what tack is taken. Uh, does the government try to take the high moral ground to draw attention to Taiwan's exclusion, or does it try to attack the WHO in some way? And so this also, I mean, particularly regarding the, for example, letter and the claims of human-to-man transition, that this did not this did not appear as a word-to-word phrase in the letter that the uh, was released by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, also that for example, in response to the claim that there were racist attacks on Tedros, that the government claimed there's no racism in Taiwan, period, um, there's actually some potential for this to be mishandled and done in a way that reflects badly on Taiwan or creates backlash. And so I think it's, it's really the balls in, in the Tsai administration's court, actually. I, I think I'd add to that um, that, yeah, the, right now the WHO and the WHA pretty much this, they've, since they've doubled down and doubled down and further doubled down, they they really right now don't seem to have a whole lot of wiggle room. But I think fundamentally what it boils down to is what does the Trump administration do? Because the accusations that the WHO and the WHA basically have been pretty much under uh, under the PRC's thumb, uh, th- those accusations have got a sting. But now that the Trump administration has said they're pulling funding, and it's by far the biggest funder, you know, exponentially bigger than, than the PRC, in spite of the fact that the PRC has had a huge amount of influence over the behavior of the WHO. The, so the question is, will the U.S. apply pressure on them to change in order to restore funding? If they if, they, if, the, if the U.S. government continues to stay out, then I think that they're just simply going to double down, as Brian says, and keep Taiwan out. If the U.S. government says, look, we'll, we'll, we'll start put, putting the funds back in, but here's one of our conditions, I think they may sit up and listen. And of course, Brian Donovan made a point there about America and Taiwan. Of course, the U.S. Congress has passed lots of resolutions. It's called for Taiwan to be in the WHA on numerous occasions. Obviously, it's time to either put up or shut up, as far as I'm concerned, where the American government goes. Because if obviously they can't get Taiwan in the WHA now, they're never going to do. Whatever bits of paper are signed by whatever president, it's never going to happen. Uh, That's right. And so this is actually a critical time, I think, that this is actually maybe the best moment for Taiwan to push for exclusion in the WHA and the WHO. Um, And if it doesn't happen now, then probably it might not happen. Um, The U.S. has reacted by cutting funding. And in return, the Chinese government announced that it's increasing funding to the WHO, I believe, by to the tune of 30 million U.S. dollars, if I recall correctly. And regarding that, the U.S. also announced that it would create its own alternative institutions or suggest that would to the WHO. And it's very interesting because this is similar to what China's actually done in the past, announcing the creation of its own uh, kind of infrastructure investment banks as alternatives to the IMF and the World Bank and so forth. And so I think then Taiwan actually has to choose 
will it align with the international community or just America kind of acting unilaterally in this way? And so this actually puts Taiwan in kind of a, a thorny dilemma in some sense uh, regarding how to push for its ex- entrance into international organizations, but also maintaining this relation with the U.S. And I think that the U.S., uh, I mean, particularly you'll see legislation or calls from members of Congress and elected representatives about uh, Taiwan, but the Trump administration, that's a different question. And so I think there might be some kind of messaging and split regarding that. And I think that Tsai Ing-wen also has to decide which one it wants to adhere more closely to uh, what Trump says or maybe legislation or, or the U.S. institutions and that kind of thing. I, I, fundamentally, the, uh, the Trump administration has got one thing right here. The WHO is staggeringly corrupt and has been for years. Um, it's been inept. It's been incompetent. However, the problem is when they say they're going to create new institutions, the Trump administration has really kind of a terrible record on working with other countries. They tend to do things totally unilaterally, and they're not very good at working with other countries. In theory, that would be a great idea, creating a new institution, which is not as corrupt as the WHO, which spends huge amounts of its budget on high-class travel for its members, for example. But the the record of the Trump administration of working with with other countries to create something new has been poor. If they were to actually put their mind to it, and Trump said that he would actually put money into other organizations to you know to work on international health health during this crisis. If they were actually to put their mind to it and create something good, that would be great. And Taiwan probably would be a charter member of, of, of such an organization. The question is whether or not the Trump administration actually would work very well with other countries in doing this, which the record's dubious on that. And staying with coronavirus news, I spoke with Bloomberg opinion columnist Tim Culpin this week about the island's tech and electronics sectors and how they're weathering the coronavirus pandemic. Good evening, Tim. Gavin, nice to talk to you. Obviously, the headlines here in Taiwan began with focusing on how the coronavirus epidemic was affecting Taiwan's tourism and aviation sectors. And in more recent weeks, we've been seeing the focus moving on to the island's manufacturing sector taking hits. Back in February, though, the Chinese National Federation of Industries here in Taiwan warned of the adverse impact of the coronavirus on the island's tech and electronic sectors. And at that time also, we saw factories owned by some of Taiwan's top tech and electronics companies being shuttered in China due to the outbreak. So how are companies such as Honhai and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing weathering global lockdowns, a decline in worldwide demand, and possibly rather cautious investors, Tim? You know, what's interesting is that initially things are doing okay for Taiwan. This is a bit counterintuitive, but for example, March export orders actually rose uh, for the month of March, up 4.3%. Economists had expected a fall. And the big driver there is electronics, which is up 24% for, for March. Now, that's not going to last. It'll probably drop off in April, May, and, and so forth. But initially, at least, Taiwan has held up quite well. Uh, I think a lot of that is because there's been a rush for orders to fill gaps uh, as China was shut down for, for a lot of the first quarter, certainly the first half of the first quarter. And there's also a belief that uh, things like servers, uh, flat screen displays and, and Nintendo Switch, amongst other things, have got a bit of a boost from, you know, work from home, from people staying at home. So right now, things have been quite good. The big names like TSMC and Hanhai seem to be weathering the storm 
so far in so far into the end of April. But the real key is the longer that this drags on, consumer demand will definitely drop off. I mean, the US is, is facing uh, millions and millions of people out of work, Europe as well. And Taiwan is just not immune to the global economy. So Taiwan itself, the domestic economy is fine, but there's no way that Taiwan's going to avoid the global impact. But I mean, some have argued that obviously a global impact drops off in demand. But when, when, the, when the virus abates somewhat and demand picks up, could Taiwanese companies be some of the first to pick up new orders? Possibly, yes. I think that is true. Uh, TSMC and Honhai are at the front edge of that. Uh, and so they will possibly pick up the orders. But, you know, it's, it's just too early to even think about when the turnaround will come. I think there's a belief amongst many people that once the virus is over, once the WHO come out, comes out and says, you know, it's all over, everybody's safe, that suddenly the economy will pick up. I think that's a little bit naive. I think that the impact from the, uh, on the economic side will last longer than the virus side because there are so many people around the world, tens of millions of people, probably hundreds of millions of people, maybe even billions of people out of work, and they won't be rehired quickly. And so that friction in getting money back into people's pockets, despite various government incentive programs, it will take time. And that means that people will be more wary about whether they're going to buy the new iPhone or the new Samsung Galaxy, whether they're going to buy a new Nintendo or a PlayStation uh, at Christmas. So I think that we shouldn't be naive to believe that it's just going to be about a medical recovery. The economic recovery could take longer. And I do think Taiwan is going to suffer less, but it's still going to suffer. And what about the companies themselves due to their rather cautious investors? Well, we are seeing so far companies like TSMC uh, are doing quite well. If you look at their stock market, and this is not investment advice, but uh, if you look at if you look at the stock market, there are various companies out there that are doing relatively better than others. TSMC is one of those. And that's because many uh, investors, especially fund managers, are still sitting on billions of dollars. And they sit there and they think, well, I have to invest this money. I'm not paid to sit on cash. I've got to put it somewhere. Where am I going to put it? What is the safest best bet? Or in some cases, what is the least risk? What is the best uh, worst option? And so they will be looking at tech uh, bellwethers and blue chips like TSMC, somewhat like Honhai, and thinking, well, it's probably a safer bet to put it in somewhere like TSMC than some riskier company that's a bit smaller and might not have the, uh, the wherewithal and the financial clout to hold through uh, the dark times. Right, and looking at some companies specifically, of course, Honhai has moved into the protective equipment sector because of the outbreak. Yeah, they have. Uh, they've done a deal with uh, a, a medical uh, electronics company to help make ventilators. I think that's a good deal for them. But it's not going to be a large driver of revenue. So I, I think there's no downside to that. But uh, I wouldn't be expecting that to, for example, make up for any possible drop in consumers wanting to buy iPhones. And what about some other of Taiwan's leading tech companies like MediaTek and Largon Precision? How are they weathering the coronavirus outbreak? Well, those two are very much, uh, because they're component suppliers, they're very much dependent on the smartphone market. Ligon, uh, you know, really is a, a, a camera maker for smartphones. MediaTek does chips also for smartphones and other things. If people are not going out to buy smartphones, then those companies are not going to do well. If there is a better than expected uh, demand for smartphones, if, for example, people are sitting at home all day on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok and thinking, you know what, I need a better smartphone. This is not doing it for me. 
or they get a certain amount of, uh, of boredom and just want to have some retail therapy, then they may jump online or go to the local electronics store and buy a smartphone. But I think that kind of boredom or desire for a new phone probably won't uh, match the fact that there are so many people out of jobs who simply can't afford a new smartphone. So I think that those who are in the component sector, especially very heavily relied on smartphones, are going to suffer going forward. And what about some of these companies having furloughed employees in Taiwan? Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, Taiwan's furlough and, and unemployment has not really reached the levels that we've seen overseas. Taiwan's unemployment rate uh, was announced earlier this week, and it did okay. Uh, I think that we would probably see an uptick in unemployment. And uh, you may also know that uh, the American Chamber of Commerce did a, a survey recently for their members, and they noted that very few had plans to lay off or have furloughs, and, and that's similar across Taiwan's sector. However, I think that we'll see furloughs as the first option over laying off staff. And it's really a matter of holding on for as long as possible. If it drags out too long, then CFOs and CEOs will have to make some pretty soft decisions. And furloughs will probably be the easier option. Or or pay cuts themselves will be the easier option versus laying off staff outright. Ryan, of course, there's been lots of calls for companies maybe not returning to China. Obviously, certain people are blaming China for the coronavirus. And obviously, certain world leaders would like big tech companies not to return to China. But do you think Taiwanese companies will not return to China after it's all abated? Or do you think they'll go back there as they are now? Well, it's not like they've pulled out of China. I mean, it's all about factories. It's not like they they removed factories from China and shoved them in Taiwan and then are going to return them again. Uh, and staffing, again, a lot of the staffing is, is mainland Chinese workers in factories. But what I think we will see is an increased belief that, you know, centralizing on China, having your supply chain in China, it remains an ongoing risk for every company. It's a business risk. They've wanted to decentralize uh, away from China for a decade. But there's a matter of finding other places to go. People have looked at Indonesia, they've looked at Vietnam, and other places in Southeast Asia, Mexico is now seen as being a very good option, uh, and even Czech Republic and other parts of East Europe. I think what really this means is that it's solidified in many CEOs' minds that they need to decentralize away from China. They're not going to pull out of China. They're still going to have a footprint in China. But it's, it's home to them the idea that if they've got another million dollars to spend on CapEx or to invest to build new factories and facilities, China will not first choice anymore. They will be looking for alternatives. And that's not going to be a quick thing. It'll happen over five or ten years. That was me in conversation with Bloomberg's Tim Colpin. We have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and DPP lawmaker Zhong Jia-bin unveiled three proposals for a new passport cover this week. The move comes amid calls for the island's passport cover to put more emphasis on the word Taiwan and less on the word China due to what some say has led to Taiwanese nationals being mistaken for Chinese citizens in immigration desks overseas. One of the designs being proposed by Zhong has no English wording and adheres pretty much to the design of the current passport. Another replaces the ROC emblem with a map of Taiwan proper with both the 
Chinese and English language words Taiwan Passport at the top and Republic of China in smaller text at the bottom. While the third design unveiled by Zhong during a legislative committee meeting replaces the ROC emblem with, wait for it, yes, an image of a cup of bubble tea. And it also includes the words Taiwan Passport in both Chinese and English. So, Brian, bubble tea on a passport... The national emblem on a passport, no emblem on a passport, Taiwan passport, big on a passport, or Republic of China passport, big on a passport. So this is one of the other uh, one of the issues which has come up numerous times in in past years. Just watch the symbols of the nation be, and this has come up regarding passport designs, uh, national ID cards, and all sorts of things. The design of the currency, for example, as well, and the national flag. Um, so I think this is a pretty clear example in which one proposal is not serious. One proposal is the extreme or the status quo, which is the ROC symbol, because of the fact that the ROC symbol is uh, it resembles the KMT party symbol, and it's a legacy of the party state. There is backlash against that, and so I think pretty clearly the logical design is is the one with Taiwan on it. But of course, the one that gets attention is is the bubble tea one. And I actually would find that idea greatly amusing if that becomes the national symbol. Um, I, I recall that when there was debate about what to do with uh, plastic straws, so these be phased out, should we start using spoons to eat bubble tea instead of drink bubble tea instead as a forum soup. This came up actually at a cabinet meeting, I think in 2017. Tsai brought it up herself. And so bubble tea can pretty quickly become a national level issue in Taiwan. I think this is maybe another example in point. I think at the very least, I would like to get uh, one of those pages in the passport in which you have these these very serious drawings of national symbols featuring bubble tea. Usually you have animals like pheasants and eagles in the case of America or mountains, but I'd like to see bubble tea at least. So, Donovan, would you like to see bubble tea or you're more of a pork cutlet man? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm hoping to marry G. Pai May, so I, I, I'm definitely not going for the pork cutlet. Um, but, but, yeah, no, I mean, bubble tea, the, I, I thought what was very interesting about the, the three different proposals that were brought up, the, the one just simply dropping the English, that was interesting because the, the, he brought up he brought up an interesting point is that a lot of countries simply don't have English on the cover at all. Um, so that, that, that actually is legitimate. Uh, but it does lead, as Brian mentions, the, the national symbol, which does highly resemble, although it's technically not the same as the KMT symbol. Um, but Taiwan does have actually a very strong international reputation for bubble tea, and it does have a strong international reputation for doing cute and doing cute very, very well. So I suppose if you really wanted to get a lot of attention for Taiwan, putting bubble milk tea on, on the cover of the passport, that would get a lot of news coverage. I'm not entirely sure it would be good news coverage, but it would certainly get a lot of news coverage. I think Brian's idea is actually probably better in that you <laughs> put it on the pages on the inside. But it would draw a lot of attention. And Brian, do you think this this will just simply go away in a few weeks, or do you think this will be a lingering thing that we'll talk about for weeks and years on end? I think this story will come up again because there's all this contestation regarding symbols of national identity and what should be put on it, uh, and there's always controversy regarding this, such as controversies regarding a design for the national idea that was proposed through crowdfunding, and it's viewed as more pro-independence because of the phrasing. And recently, with, uh, for example, calls to rename China Airlines because of confusion with uh, that this is a Chinese rather than Taiwanese airline, there are also calls to redesign the uh, to change the name to Taiwan Airlines or something like that, and to resign the livery of the airplane to make it resemble bubble tea. And so one has seen all these satirical designs for bubble tea tea themed airplanes and and, uh, uh, uniforms and and that kind of thing. And uh, I also recall that Minister of uh, Transportation, Ling Jialong, posted 
three designs, uh, three ideas for designs. One which was uh, of rainbows, and another which was like bubble tea and chicken, fried chicken. Another one which was like these kind of shopping bags that you see. And so I think that this uh, the the notion of bubble tea themed national symbols will probably come up again. And what I loved best was of the of the Lin Jialong, uh images that he put up there was the one that actually had the airline that looked like a bubble. It had the delivery <laughs> with bubble tea, but it also had from the where the engines were. It looked like they were shooting missiles of bubble <laughs> tea out out of the out of the engines. I thought that was particularly good. But one point to bring up on, on when it comes to the dropping of. Republic of China off the passports was that NPP poll, which said that over 70% of the public supports dropping any mention of China in English on the cover. Now, it's notable that it was just in English, not not completely, but dropping any mention of China uh, from, the, from the cover of the passport. That's a pretty significant majority of the public. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And this has come up as an issue in the past years, too, with the sticker campaign, for example, to have a Republic of Taiwan sticker on the passport and this being stopped at airports and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Of course, if you put bubble tea on the passport, of course, dentists and people that have diabetes, well, that's, you know, bubble tea, diabetes, need a dentist, doesn't really know. I don't like the bubble tea idea. I think that is pretty bad because of dentistry, you know, bubble tea, sugary, and also diabetes. Anyway, I digress, and we should move on to something more serious. And the KMT this week held the first of a series of talks being dubbed Future Salon as part of moves to make its Institute of Revolutionary Practice a platform to attract younger members. Now, party chairman Johnny Jung touted his hopes that the Institute could become, in his words, an important cradle for attracting and cultivating talent shortly after he was elected to lead the KMT in recent months. Now, party lawmakers Jung Wen-an, Hong Mong-kai and William Tsung, along with 17 other KMT members, mostly city councillors, announced they were joining the Institute as teachers this week, while Taipei City Councillor Lord Jia Jung was appointed as the Institute's new director on April the 7th. And speaking to reporters earlier this week, Law described the Institute as a training unit. Now, it was founded by Chiang Kai-shek many, many moons ago and other KMT leaders, but changed its name in 1999 to the National Development Research Institute before reverting it back to its original name in 2017. So, Brian, you're young. If someone said, would you like to go to the revolutionary practice, the institute there of the revolutionary practices, would you think, hey, that's a good idea? So the scary thing for me is, particularly because I come from a KMT family, I could actually see an alternative lifetime in which I would have actually ended up in this. Uh, There actually are a lot of these KMT schools that serve as ways to train young pan-blue people, such as the Institute for Revolutionary Practice or the Sun Yat-sen School and etc. And I've I've actually friends that have been to these schools, and they always can do crazy things such as recite the entire constitution and the three principles of people off the top of their head and so forth. Um, but what's interesting about this is just, again, the attempt to win back young people to the party. And I think hosting these salon-style events is actually trying to mimic what the KMT sees as the tactics of the DPP or of the Pan-Green Camp, in that in the years before all these young people entered politics, there was increasingly popular events being held, salon-style events to discuss politics and social issues and that kind of thing at spaces such as, for example, Cafe Philo in Taipei and and uh, university campuses and so forth. Um, with regards to the strange name of the Institute of Revolutionary Practice, uh, what's actually come up in recent times with 
efforts by young people in the KMT to reform the party, you see this claim recurring coming up that the KMT used to be a revolutionary party, it was once revolutionary, and we need to go back to these revolutionary roots. And so this is a way to call for reform uh, while also maintaining adherence to the traditional party ideology. And so this young people in the KMT continue to bring this up. However, I don't know if this will necessarily have resonance with the broader public. After democratization, hearing the KMT talk about revolution sounds actually just like an attempt to restore authoritarianism or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I can I can add a few things here. You know, it, it seems like Johnny Chang is really trying, uh, Jiang Jitsun, he's really trying to do something here. He's trying to get things, he's putting a lot of energy into really trying to reform the party. And he's been making some moves which uh, at least superficially smell good in the sense that he got the head of D-Card in charge, uh, one of the founders of D-Card, uh, which is a popular uh, kind of a social media thing here in Taiwan uh, as the head of their digital marketing. And he's bringing, he brought in Jiang Wanan, which is a good choice for, you know, for this new revolutionary institute, for the, <laughs> the reborn revolutionary institute. Um, and so there's been a lot of moves that look super, at least superficially good. But there's a couple of things that kind of jump out as, well, hmm. For example, this new, the Revolutionary Institute, and the, they are starting to do some, they want to do the, you know, the, as you mentioned, the future salons, which on its surface, again, looks like a really good idea, and they're going to broadcast them online. And so it does seem like a good idea to reach out to, you know, new potential voters, to younger voters. And then they came up with the absolutely genius, brilliant idea that if we're going to do our first future salon and we really want to reach out and get that young audience, they went, you know, I know exactly who we have to have as that first guest that's just going to really pump up the youth audience. Mind Joe. And I think you can kind of guess where I'm going with this. Obviously, Mind Joe with the Sunflower Movement was a reviled figure. And to try and, and to use Mind Joe as the first guest on their first future salon really kind of sends the message that they're not necessarily moving toward the future. And then throw in, bring in, uh, they, now this admittedly, I think the Taipei Times got this wrong the other day, uh, but they, they bring in Han Guoyu into the Central Standing Committee. Now, Johnny Chang, to be fair, had to, because of the makeup of what they were saying that the Central Standing Committee was going to be, that it had to have a lot of local government heads. That, and so Johnny Chang sent out the invitations to all the major local government heads to become on the, uh, to join the Central Standing Committee of the KMT. Now, new Taipei Mayor uh, Hou Youyi and Taichung Mayor uh, Lu Xiaoyan turned it down quite reasonably and rationally. They said, look, we've got, you know, we've got the coronavirus right now. We don't have time for this. But then Han Guoyu accepts, and Han Guoyu probably accepted because he may lose the recall vote, and that leaves him at least some shred of importance if he does lose the recall vote. But that, again, doesn't exactly bode well for the party for reaching out to younger voters. 
and Brian, of course, Donovan there said, Mine Joe came to the first one. Would that be like the DPP inviting Chen Shui-Bien to give a talk at a young event for young people there? <laughs> it would be. Um, but also, it's, it's quite interesting, actually. This points to what this uh, new push for bringing young people into KMT actually means, I feel like. Because what's interesting is that Mind Joe is just because of, precisely because of his unpopularity after Sunfire Moon, he is much more cognizant compared to other KMT leaders of the importance of trying to win back the youth vote. And so actually, uh, after the defeats of the KMT in 2016, there were youth reformers that tried to reform the party. And so the party traditionalists tried to drive them out of the party. Mind Joe actually went and tried to bring them back into the party. And he had some successes cultivating people such as Xu Xiaoxing, the uh, city councillor in Taipei, uh, who actually ran and won. And so he actually has been the person that's been leading a lot of these efforts to bring young people back into the party. But that's actually just the young people that are in the pan-blue camp already, who will always be loyal to the pan-blue camp and try to promote them and to advance them in the party. This will have little resonance with the public at large. And so that's that, it's actually interesting that it, re- it represents that the younger wing of the KMT is growing in power somewhat. And they, they have been able to actually take over institutions with the KMT, such as the, the Institute of Reformatory Practice. Um, party schools, such as the Sun Yat-sen School, for example, have been pretty deep blue and maintaining that, oh, we need to push for unification with China. And so actually, this is reflective of internal contestation of the party. Anyway, before we go this week, Reporters Without Borders releases World Press Freedom Index on Tuesday, and Taiwan was ranked 43rd, down one spot from last year, and Taiwan's now sitting between South Korea in 42nd place and the Organisation of Eastern Caribbean States in 44th place. But although Taiwan dropped one spot on paper, Cedric Alviani, the East Asia Director of Reporters Without Borders here in Taipei, said it doesn't mean that press freedom here in Taiwan has declined, it's just the mechanism we do this table, and if other countries get better, some Someone has to go down. So, Brian, Taiwan ranks 43rd. A surprise didn't change much from last year. Uh, that's right, and it's it's not surprising. Taiwan continues to be a free and democratic country, although there's always issues in the press regarding, for example, the easy ability to be used libel lawsuits, the fact that they're large uh, conglomerates operating, and so forth. And these kind of issues, I think, you see everywhere. Um, but then particularly compared to the decline in press freedoms that the worsening of press freedoms one has seen in China with the arrest of journalists, the expulsion of foreign journalists, and so forth. Um, I think it's interesting then that, that Taiwan's uh, approval rating continues to be pretty high regarding press freedom at a time in which I think there might be journalists relocating from China to possibly Taiwan or elsewhere because of the fact they can't operate now in China or in Hong Kong. They brought up two very specific criticisms, um, which I think are actually relevant and important. One is they said the local press is very prone to sensationalism, and the other is there's concern about the impact of, obviously, the, the People's Republic of China on local on local media, and those those are two genuine concerns. I think that if those two things were dealt with, I think the, the the position would rise much higher. But ironically, I think of all of the possible issues that will motivate or try to get that will actually get people here to seriously consider improving things on those fronts, the fact that Taiwan ranked below by one position, South Korea, I think may actually end up being a more a higher motivating factor, because here generally, when whenever thing whenever Taiwan can, compares itself to anything in East Asia, South Korea seems to be the go-to place, and ranking below South Korea, I think, is particularly galling for a lot of people. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan this week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Have a nice night. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. 
great to be here. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And we won't be here next week on Friday because it's May the 1st. It's May Day. It's Workers' Day. We're not working. But don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.